Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with David Campbell, CEO and co-founder of Tropic, a software procurement platform that's raised $68 million in funding. David, thanks for chatting with me today. Absolutely. Happy to be here, Brett. Yeah. So before we can talk about what you're building, could we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Definitely. Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California in the Mojave Desert on a cattle ranch, actually, of all places. And then I went to school at UC Berkeley and was in the Bay Area for a while, and where I majored in Renaissance literature, which is not been the most helpful major. After that, I, you know, more or less came to the East Coast where I got plugged into the tech ecosystem, got started in sales, had a brief detour to try and be the next great American novelist, which didn't pad out, but I think helped me solidify my vision of entrepreneurship by giving me some time to focus on something that no one else was telling me to focus on. And alongside that, started to build up a sales career. I hit my stride at a MarTech platform called BounceX, where I was, you know, the top individual contributor and then eventually the VP and scaled that business up to $80 million in ARR from basically zero. At the end of that journey, I went to Microsoft and did a stint of big company work as a global business manager with a $500 million patch there. And over the course of that journey, saw a lot of different shapes and sizes of company and a lot of different ways of buying and managing the technology that I or someone on my team was selling. And it was over the course of that journey that I started to get clarity on the problem space that we're focused on here at Tropic. Now, let's go back a little bit then. So growing up on a cattle ranch, what was that like? I think you're the first person to come on the podcast that grew up on a cattle ranch. Yeah, honestly, it was awesome in hindsight and in the moment, you know, terrible. I I just wanted to be in a suburb playing ball with kids in the street. But my father and my mother were both in advertising in Chicago in the 80s and leading kind of a wild lifestyle. There's been this ranch that's been in my father's side of the family for generations. And when they decided to have children, they wanted to do it somewhere a little bit quieter. So they picked the ranch. So, you know, I had exposure to tons of fort building, lots of hiking. You know, we played baseball using, you know, cow shit basically as the bases and things like that, all the things that you might do on a cattle ranch. And I'm really grateful for the upbringing now, but. In the moment, I just wanted to be around other kids. <laughs> yeah, I grew up in the mountains and it was the same thing. You know, looking back, it's awesome and it was so cool. But when I was a little kid, it was awful. I wanted to be in a, a real city with you know, a bunch of other kids and not live the mountain life. So I can relate there. Yeah, that's the human condition. We're, we're never satisfied. <laughs> yep. Now, uh, on BounceX, were you there when the, they had the office in the New York Times building? Do they still have that? I went to that office a few or a long time ago in like 2017, and it was one of the sickest offices I think I've ever been to. Yeah, I was. I was actually there before that. So the OG, OG BounceXers, like the first five were at an incubator. I missed that by a couple of weeks. Joined as the 15th employee, though, at an office on Hudson Street, which was not the sickest office ever, and then did work in that New York Times building office for a couple of years. And then I left before the move happened, but they've since rebranded to Vudrican and relocated to One World Trade. And apparently that's truly the sickest office ever, although I haven't seen it. Oh, got it. Wow. They leveled up from the New York Times one. I thought that was as cool as you could get. Me too. I thought that was the uh, the upper limit, but uh, <laughs> we'll prove this wrong. 
<laughs> nice. That's awesome. Now, a couple of the questions we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, great question. So this answer changes for me quite often. It's kind of just like, who am I obsessing over and inspired by in a given moment? And right now I'm drawing a lot of inspiration from Parker Conrad, the CEO of Rippling. And uh, I think that Rippling's product strategy in particular is brilliant. Uh, we have a very similar product strategy at Tropic where, you know, casting a wide net with your product enables compounding value for your end user. And what I also like about Parker is that he had, I think, a, a less than graceful exit from Zenefits. You know, there was lots of bad blood, I think, associated with the departure. And he went through all of that. You know, it, I think for many people, a founder's worst dream came out the other side, dusted himself off and built a much better company right after. And I think that that kind of resilience is something that I really admire. So he's the one that I'm focusing on right now. Nice. I love that. Yeah. I just listened to an episode with him on uh, 20 VC, that podcast. And he said it was his first chance to really tell his side of the story or really tell any story at all. But he basically just, you know, sat there and took it for years as everyone's essentially shit on him and, you know, beat him up for everything that happened. But then I, um, I don't remember how he worded it, but it was something along the lines of, you know, success is the, was it success is the best revenge? Something along those lines. That was very clever. And seems like he's definitely pulled that off with his latest company. Yep, absolutely. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And this can be classic business book or a personal book that influenced how you view the world? Yeah, you know, book that influenced how I view the world, absolutely hands down, Dune by Frank Herbert. I've been a Dune head since before it was cool, before they had the remake with Timothy Chalamet. Great book for kind of understanding the dark side of leadership and the the politics of big or scaling company movement, although that's kind of not at face value what that book is about. There's a lot to learn from that book on that topic. Really, the book that I think has had the biggest impact on Tropic, though, would have to be The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think it's most you know startup founders Bible by Ben Horowitz. And I think that most of the lessons in that book have made their way into my operating principles of Tropic. And my favorite takeaway, I think, is the concept of a wartime CEO and a wartime company. I think if you're leading a business in 2023, especially if you're at the growth stage like we are, where the funding market is very challenging, the customer market is very challenging, and you know the downturn has flipped a lot of tenants that you kind of held to be stable on their heads. You have to recognize that it's wartime and that you know, the maneuverings of a wartime CEO are required. So took quite a bit from hard thing about hard things in that respect, as uh, you know, Mr. Horowitz had to navigate 2008 and all of that. Nice. Yeah. I think that's probably the most recommended book or the top book that founders come on and say. So definitely I have heard that one before. What are some of the changes that you've had to make as you transition to a wartime CEO? Yeah, I think that more than anything, I've always kind of been that way and have been able to hit my stride at a company that is navigating a wartime environment. And what I mean by that is I'm generally uncomfortable if everything is going okay. Like if there's a reason that it's okay to sign off at 5 p.m., I feel like surely something is wrong. I actually feel very engaged and checked in when there are big, heavy problems to solve. And I think that, you know, probably the biggest way that I've seen, you know, the impact of the economy show up is the market that we're in very quickly became extremely crowded almost overnight because everyone, you know, at least in our ideal customer profile or in our addressable market needs to save money because of what's happening in the market. And that's what our company does. So, you know, we had one competitor, we blinked, we have like 30 now. 
And I think there's actually an upside to having a crowded market and an upside to having lots and lots of competitors if you're the one that is willing to lean in extremely aggressively and kind of address that challenge head on. And that's something that we've done with our sales culture, with our product strategy, like Parker, you know, I mentioned a moment ago, we've stolen a lot of those ideas without realizing that we'd stolen them. And we're building lots of different products at once really rapidly. And I think that, you know, wartime for me is not about violence or anger. It's about really, really fast paced decision-making in the absence of data and with lots and lots of ambiguity and with an eye towards, you know, meeting the challenge head on and directly addressing the competition. That's where I think we've seen it show up the most. And it also, I think, has a, an effect of really galvanizing the culture of the company. I think that if there's one thing that we've done right at Tropic, I do think it's the culture. And that really just means that we've hired the right people because the people create the culture. You don't really have that luxury, even as a CEO. And the culture that we have is one that I think has really rallied around the vision and really excited to go to war in a manner of speaking. And if you don't have that wartime backdrop, you don't have that galvanization. If you don't have an enemy, uh, you don't have the same inspiration to exceed expectations and succeed as a business. So I think that's where we've actually gotten a lot of value from the chaos in the macro economy right now. And just from a personal psychology point of view, has that been hard at, at times to read the news and just keep seeing you know competitor after competitor raise funding and launch? Did that ever get in your head? And if so, what did you do to overcome that so that it didn't distract you from the business? Because I think there's a lot of founders who are in a similar spot where in the 2021 or early 2022, boom, when funding was going crazy, Tiger was throwing money around like wild. You know, there was a lot of noise there. And I think that can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes for a founder to see. Did you experience that? Oh, of course. I mean, I tell everybody that asks me about being a founder is like with regards to competitors, with regards to, you know, terminations of executives, whatever it is you have to go through, like it hurts tremendously. And like, I think to be a founder, you're signing up for pain most of the time, right? That's at least me. I'm not a stoic individual at all. It's not weird for me to like post something on LinkedIn at 2am about like the anxious spiral that I'm going down in my head. That I think is like very typical of the founder experience. But what's really important is that you feel those feelings and move through them. And, you know, that's the key because moving through those feelings puts you in a position of inspiration. And that's when kind of my best ideas come to me. But if you're stuck in those feelings, if you can't get out of them, if you don't have levers that you can pull in your life to move through those feelings, that's when you get really distracted, right? So like, I don't care almost whatsoever what any of our competitors' product roadmap is because I believe that ours is better, right? And as soon as I get distracted from that gut instinct that I think CEOs really have to listen to, and I start chasing somebody else's features, I'm basically signing up for being one to two months behind forever. And is that what I want to sign up for? Like, definitely not. That's not the legacy that I, that I want to leave at Tropic. So, so, you know, you have to move through those feelings and then put yourself in a space of generative thinking. None of my ideas are rocket science and they're all stolen pretty much when it comes to how to take care of yourself. But the most basic things I've been implementing that have been extremely successful recently are like just turning on do not disturb after I send my last email of the night. And then in the morning before I turn it off, I do meditation first. Then I set my intention for the day. Then I run, you know, all the things that I'm sure a million other founders have said. But then I take it, you know, then I turn off the notifications and it, it kind of brings me to a place of calm and confidence so that if I see that a competitor raised money, if I see that something exploding with the product, like those things that will inevitably happen to you, they kind of pass by. Like I feel the acute pain and then I move through it. 
and get back to a place of generative thinking. So that's kind of like, but yeah, I mean, if you've had a founder on here who's like, yeah, it doesn't bother me. I like, I want whatever that guy's having because this is a painful experience, although also the the most rewarding. Nice. I love the, love the honesty there. Now let's talk about the origin story. So take me back to those early days as you were sitting there with a, a notepad or whatever it was, you know, thinking about the idea, what was going through your mind and what made you decide to really pull the trigger on this idea? Yeah, definitely. So I'd been thinking about software as a category for a long time, like software for software, the meta software space. I'd been thinking about that since I was an individual contributor on the sales side. And the reason is because I tend to think that the optimum conditions for an excellent business to emerge are when there's some kind of pre-Cambrian explosion in an existing ecosystem that changes behaviors materially, but the industry attached to that explosion hasn't yet caught up. And in this case, that explosion is software. Cloud software is everywhere. Like investors, I'm sure, have all seen a thousand pitch decks that have that like Lumascape with 10,000 MarTech vendors on it and the software is eating the world quote. So software has exploded, but procurement either doesn't exist if you're, you know, a tech startup or mid-sized company, the companies that I initially started selling to, or it really exists, but it has nothing to do with buying software because it was designed for buying hardware, for buying widgets, you know, for buying the plastic that goes into building the Tesla. So on one side of this ecosystem, which is the side that I grew up on, you have this laser focused sales motion with the most highly efficient process attached to it, with this vast ecosystem of tools, Zoom Info, you know, Inside Squared, we used to have Gong, you know, Outreach, whatever, the list goes on and on. And on the other side of that ecosystem, the buyer has basically nothing, right? Even today, it has basically nothing when it comes to software. It's still, I think, very early innings on the enablement of the buy side, leveling up to match the enablement of the sell side. And the aha moment for me, like the moment where I decided I want to take this on and take up the mantle as the one that solves this problem. I was at Microsoft. I'd been there for a year and a couple of months. I took a title that was above my weight class because I thought it would be amazing. And quite honestly, what I learned was big companies are not my thing. Way too slow. Peacetime, no matter what's going on, right? There's already a deck for everything. So just not my vibe. And the, the opportunity presented itself when a customer in my patch had a $100 million per year Microsoft renewal coming up. They'd missed the opt-out date. The main reason they'd missed the opt-out date was they had crazy turmoil inside their business. They'd had you know CEO turnover, 10% RIF, a giant global insurance company, right? So the sales rep on my team that was supposed to grow this account was like, hey, this is not going to happen. There's way too much turbulence inside this customer. So I'm escalating it. Can you talk to them? So I got on the phone with the procurement team. And the message was more or less, look, our entire team is new. I'm sure you've seen the news. The whole company turned over, like the whole leadership team turned over rather. We've had a 10% riff. And I'm looking at this order form from Microsoft that has 300 SKUs in it. I have no idea what these are. I have no idea who bought this stuff. I have no idea if these prices are fair. I have no idea if we're using this, but I know that we don't need you know, 200,000 seats anymore because we don't have 200,000 people anymore. We just laid 10% of them off. So we're not ready to do this. Like we really need your help. Can you please help us right size this, you know, get through this year and we'll make it up to you next year. And I asked, you know, the powers that be at Microsoft. And the answer, of course, was no. It's not our fault that they're terrible at buying and managing their technology. That's their fault. And this company got locked into a contract for software that they could not afford, no budget, didn't even need, plenty of tools that had no value to them as a business. 
for seats that they certainly didn't have because they laid people off. So all around, totally without value agreement, like no customer value in the agreement. And to pay for it, they had to lay more people off because, of course, traditionally, the SaaS provider, in this case, Microsoft, actually has the leverage if it's an entrenched player like that. So the day that those layoffs happened, I was like, okay, so I've seen small companies fail at this because there's no infrastructure for it. I've seen mid-sized companies fail at this because the infrastructure is wrong. And I've seen enterprise companies fail at this so completely that it's actually led to thousands of people getting laid off just to pay a SaaS bill. So that says to me, the problem is big enough. Software is going nowhere but up. The TAN is big enough. It affects small and giant companies alike. And there's no sales force for buyers is what it amounts to. So that system of record was really the idea. And I thought with my exposure and uh, empathy from having been on the sales side, I was uniquely positioned to solve it. You know, quit that day. I'm, I'm a big believer in torching your safety net. I think that that's actually, at least for me, a critical step to launching the business. If I was still getting paid anything, I don't think that I would have been all in. So as soon as I realized my next paycheck is going to have to come from venture capital and to raise that venture capital, I'm going to have to turn this into something real. That was when I started, you know, working around the clock to make it happen. And I actually coded the prototype myself that we used to raise the initial capital from Foundry Collective, design prototype. We got it in the hands of a bunch of different companies to start giving us feedback. And then basically right after the funding cleared, COVID-19 happened. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, much as the market conditions are a tailwind for us right now in an inversely proportional way, COVID-19 was as well. And it really launched the business as people became really serious overnight about managing spend. And that was kind of the, uh, the springboard for us. Nice. Makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And looking at the logos there that you have on your website, so you have obviously the big names, Intercom, Gusto, DocuSign, Notion, Zapier. Those are customers, right? Yep, those are all customers. So for you, does that ever put you in an awkward situation where your customers are also the ones who are on the other side that are having the cost cut? You would think so, but oddly enough, no. I think that everyone sort of recognizes that this is the cost of entry. Like if you want to benefit from the scale and the data that we have. And that's really kind of key to our product strategy. Everything that we build, we build on top of a product schema of our first party data that we've collected. And we weave that first party data in valuable ways throughout the customer journey. So if you want to access that, then you have to kind of participate in this collective in a manner of speaking. And also at the same time, in many cases, these teams are not as directly in touch with one another as you might think. You know, the finance team is using Tropic for one thing. And the sales team is using Tropic for another thing. One way of kind of extending an olive branch that connects those two teams and sort of enforces harmony across this ecosystem that is totally unique to Tropic is we have what we call an open source marketplace. And what that means is we have a marketplace where there's zero commissions exchanged at all. We collect nothing from it. And we've made this decision very intentionally because this is a market where there's tremendous bias and where every platform that is supposed to be helping you is actually funded privately by the supply side and even including Gartner, right? So we've chosen to do things differently. And what that does is it gives the customers that we're saving money for an opportunity to list on the platform 
in a way that's going to drive business for them at whatever an approved discount is for that particular category. So that's kind of how we balance things. But I think that the the main kind of philosophical tenet that is most powerful for how our business is driven today is that the power of the finance team in 2023 outweighs the power of basically any other team because we're all Tropic included, not graded explicitly on top line growth anymore. We're actually graded much more explicitly on bottom line, efficiency, retention. All those metrics are what we're getting graded on in you know the late stage private sector. And because of that, the CFO has tremendous empowerment to enforce a mode of operating within the parameters of, uh, of Tropic as platform. So that's uh, probably more detail than you were looking for, but those are the various ways that we kind of balance everything. We like detail, so that's really interesting. And that aligns with things that you know I've seen and what some other guests have mentioned where you know, regardless of the market and the industry that you're in, you're selling to the CFO. And that's just the status quo for 2023. There's no way around it. And for a lot of companies, I think that's a new motion for them, right? Like they have to totally change the pitch and and change how they talk about the product because the CFOs, they're probably far more skeptical than an average buyer, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And they're, they don't want the wine and dine experience. Like they don't want the next tickets, like they want outputs and impact. Right. And they're under tremendous pressure right now too, because remember like the CFO probably has a board level OKR that might be like job defining or job ruining to save money and bring efficiency into the company right now. So, you know, you better come correct for that. I do think though, this again is like my emphasis on kind of a wartime environment. I think that that environment is perfect for becoming an absolutely amazing seller, right? If you can navigate this, if you can remove all the frills and fluff associated with selling all the relationship driven sales that in an up market might help you. I actually think that those are crutches that the industry needs to evolve away from. And I actually think that this is a good time for pulling those things into the light and kind of reestablishing the fundamentals of how to create value for a customer in a real way with your product. So it's tough, but it's good. It it forces us to be honest. It forces us to be better. And uh, for that, we're grateful. And given the focus now on revenue and, and profit that, you know, startups of your size are facing right now, was that a hard decision for you to make to make that open source marketplace you know, non-commission based and to not have that revenue stream coming in? Because I'm sure that would be nice to have that revenue pouring in. So what was that decision like for you? Yeah, honestly, it was a very easy decision for us, you know, not to be like cheeky about it. The only reason it was easy for us is because we got crystal clear on our vision at the beginning of launching Tropic. And our vision is purchasing paradise as we put it, hence the palm tree and and all the fun branding. And that means that we're 100% aligned to one side of the equation. We're 100% aligned to empowering the buyer. And it makes it very easy to see revenue streams like marketplace revenue as a conflict of interest that ultimately will erode the trust of that buyer. So it's like, obviously we don't want to do that. Maybe there are quick wins to be had, you know, if you can get this up and running for a year, but I don't like, you know, referral fees as a general premise. Like I prefer SaaS. I think it's, you know, if you call it marketplace revenue, then maybe you can get away with a big multiple, but if it's really just a referral fee, it's kind of tough. And also like, we just knew that monetizing that area would again, erode trust with the CFO, who is the most important person to us from a product strategy perspective. And, you know, with that being said, we did continue to stay aggressive in our growth trajectory. And, you know, we continue to kind of invest in growth. We just chose to keep it aligned to the one side um, versus another. I think it's like a snappy looking investor pitch, but I'm not convinced that 
it's what the industry is asking for. I think the industry is actually asking for something that is ungameable. And that's what we're trying to create. And on the topic of brand there, what'd you call it? Purchase paradise? <laughs> Purchasing paradise. That's right. <laughs> nice. I love that. And yeah, when I was you know reviewing the website before this interview, I was looking through and just thinking, wow, you guys have done such a good job on branding and you're just doing a, a killer job on marketing. I think people are coming around to it now in the enterprise B2B world to understand the importance of brand and, and branding. But it seems like you guys have really nailed that. So was that a priority from day one about what the brand would look like and what it would feel like? Or did that come later on in your company's journey? Yeah, no, it was actually extremely intentional. We even, you know, a friend of mine, his uh, his partner does branding and naming specifically professionally. And we had like a two-day pizza party with her where we like locked ourselves in a room and figured out what we wanted the brand to be. But what I knew going into that is that I didn't want a company that ends in L-Y or I-F-Y. You know, I didn't want a brand that sounds enterprise because when I think about our end users, like every CFO, literally 100% of the CFOs that I've sold to at Tropic are millennials. Lots of the people at our, at our company that we employ are Gen Z. And this generation, millennials in particular, like me, like the CFOs that I work with, are extremely skeptical of what came before. And they're also very conditioned, I think, to a very consumer streamlined brand experience. Like we all grew up with iPhones. We grew up used to speed and immediacy. And enterprise technology to me is literally the opposite of that. It's like here to slow things down. It sucks. It's disgusting. It's hard to read. And I just wanted to be the opposite of that. I wanted to be light and airy and breezy. And, you know, Tropic made a lot of sense in that respect because it's like, you know, we want to disrupt procurement. What's like the least procurement sounding thing we can think of? Procurement is like a disgusting word. I almost hesitate to even use, you know? So we really wanted to be the opposite of that. I really do believe that on the brand side, the companies that win, that are doing a really good job with that, are the companies that fully embrace the idea of a consumer look and feel for their enterprise B2B SaaS brand. And I think that we're going to see a lot more of that as younger and younger people come into the workplace and some of these more legacy players age out. Where did that come from for you, do you think, that you know, understanding of the importance and brand and, and wanting to make it fun? Was that from Bounceex and Wonderkin? Because I feel like they always had fun branding or they would try to do fun branding. Do you think it came from there or did it come from somewhere else? Yeah, I, th I think there was a bit of that. You know, what was nice about the experience there is our clients were all, you know, at least when I started there, they were all up and coming hot e-commerce brands, right? With great branding, companies like Casper, right? That were kind of reimagining stodgy or legacy spaces with a fresh coat of paint that really spoke to a younger generation. That was in that era, you know, 2012, 2014, New York City, a ton of venture capital investment was flowing into those consumer type brands. At least it felt like that at the time. Maybe it was because I was working at Batsex. So it just like planted this seed for me that I was like, that model could so easily be applied to B2B SaaS. Why is nobody doing that? And the answer, I guess, that many would give is like, you know, people don't want that for B2B SaaS. And I fundamentally disagree. I think that they do, uh, if they're being honest with themselves. So probably that experience had something to do with it. And I also, before that, worked briefly at a, at a marketing agency on the content side. You know, I thought I was going to be a writer for most of my life. And that was really about bringing a fresh voice to legacy brands as well. So, and that, and I've just kind of always had an inherent, you know, distrust of authority. I've had an inherent rejection of whatever the traditional path is. And, you know, I don't see that screaming more loudly anywhere as I do in enterprise SaaS, which I think is just so boring and could be so much better. And I, I think that whether you realize it consciously or not, the power of the right brand 
influences CSAT, influences sales, influences employee engagement. Like it really has a profound impact if you're willing to embrace it, in my opinion. Nice. I love that. I think that's super valuable for founders to hear because I do think there's some founders and marketers who are skeptical on that. I had a conversation a few weeks ago with a CMO who literally told me that brand does not matter. They weren't investing in brand. They weren't doing anything with brand. And just from my perspective, I thought this person was kind of a moron. Like it didn't make any sense to me. It seems like you don't really have an option now. You have to invest in brand. And that seems like very, very outdated thinking. Absolutely. That's funny. We, you know, we have how big is it today? I think a six-person marketing team. Just a couple of weeks ago, though, it was only a, a three-person marketing team. A company of our size and stage should arguably have a 10-person marketing team. And we just hired, you know, we're three years in, Series B company. We've tripled revenue the last couple of years. And you would expect that we'd be investing in demand gen at some point on that journey. We just hired the first person for that. Everything that marketing did before that was brand, everything. It was PR strategy, which we were able to cultivate organically to get some placements. It was me writing a bunch of crazy shit on LinkedIn all the time and building brand that way, which I think is actually a better alternative to paying for PR nowadays and events and speaking engagements. We really invested heavy on the brand side and all of our demand either came inbound through word of mouth and because of the branding stuff or was through our SDR team. We had zero investment in driving demand for marketing. And now we're starting to do that. I'm not saying that what we did is exactly the right way, but it actually worked for us. Like capitalizing on our brand has always shown up in the numbers for us. So I'm I'm a big believer. And what were you doing to measure ROI? Or did you just say for right now, for the short term, as we build out this brand, I'm not going to care about ROI? Because how did you balance that if you wanted to spend, but also not wanting to be crazy and just blowing money on things that you can't track back to ROI? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So at the risk of citing another book that everyone on your show probably talks about, I'm such a huge fan of Amp It Up, you know, Frank Slubin. I've read it three times at this point. And, you know, the first half of my operating principles are probably the Ben Horowitz book, the second half of the Slubin book. And one of the things that I really like about the Slubin book is the favoring of execution over strategy at certain key lifecycle stages as a business. So when we started, we said, let's execute. Like, let's not worry too much about strategy. Let's not worry too much about accountability. And execute, by the way, doesn't mean spending millions of dollars, right? It meant, you know, let's spend a couple thousand here, a couple thousand there and and see what starts to happen. And then as we started to see what was starting to happen, we got better clarity on how to measure. And we started to see that website traffic was going up. We started to see that we were getting mentioned all over social media. Like we would see things like, you know, tweets that are like, hey, what's that purchasing paradise company or whatever it's called. And like, that to me is indication that it's working. Like those would be the things that we would look at. We don't have a way even now of tying that back to like meetings booked and then closed one, but that kind of wasn't the goal. The goal was like, can we start to suck the air out of the room? Because, you know, we were late to the party with our marketing. We have competitors who've raised way more money. We're winning in deals competitively eight times out of 10. So we're like, we need to show up to this party in a very real way and let's throw money at it until we figure out what showing up actually means and how to measure it. And that's kind of what we did. Nice. Love that. Now let's talk about market categories. So I introduced you saying the the word that you don't like, I guess, procurement, software procurement <laughs> platforms. No, apologies there for uh, starting off on a, a rocky foot. But what is your market category or how do you think about your market category? Yeah, so I was thinking about it before the call. We've been trying to figure out what to call it. Some people call it a, you know, a SaaS purchasing platform. Some people call it like SaaS management plus service. I think that what it really is, even though it's unsexy, is unified spend management. 
for finance and IT together. That's really what it's about. You know, I was thinking finance, life cycle, management, I don't know. You know, I don't have a snappy word for it yet. But really what it's about is like one platform where you can control every single dollar that's leaving your business and where finance and IT can partner strategically, right? Because if you look at IT in the past, it's been about provisioning, about security, you know, about kind of making sure the trains run on time, making sure that, you know, I can access gone when I start as a, you know, as a new employee. And finance is laser focused on the dollars and cents. But finance for software is an ongoing kind of always on life cycle, right? It's like you're coming up to the renewal, you're negotiating the renewal, you're buying, you're provisioning the seats, you're flexing up, you're flexing down. Next thing you know, it's coming up for renewal again. Or it's a consumption-based tool like a snowflake that's fluctuating month over month in ways that can be challenging for finance to forecast and project. And I think that we're seeing unprecedented partnership now between finance and IT to realize that like the stack, the software that we have, which for our customer base is usually the second most expensive thing they have behind their employees, is run amok. And the only way to actually control it is with something that's always on that is influencing the process for finance and for IT together. So, you know, integrated spend management there, you know, I'll tell you if I ever figure out exactly what it's supposed to be called, but that's what it's supposed to do ensure that you're scrutinizing every dollar leading the business and that you're getting value from everything that you're paying money for. Interesting. And it makes sense. Now, I know we're getting close to being up on time here. So let's just end with the final question. Let's zoom out three to five years from today. What's the future look like? What is that vision for the company? Yeah. So I believe that there's a very big opportunity for this platform. And, you know, I mentioned the Salesforce for buyers earlier. That was by design. I think that in a lot of cases, you know, we're bringing... Procurement's not such a four-letter word that I won't use it. We're bringing procurement practices into companies that don't yet have them, right? Companies are realizing at 800 employees, 1,000 employees that, you know, in tech, they traditionally won't build out a dedicated procurement function until much later on the journey because they think we don't need procurement because we're not buying widgets and plastic, right? And I think everyone is kind of collectively waking up all at once to the fact that we need some functional way of controlling our costs. Maybe it's procurement, maybe it's not. And there's no system of record in place for doing that. In many cases, we're coming in and they're using a spreadsheet to track all of their contracts. And there's no record of who actually bought what. And they don't know who's negotiating these agreements. And, you know, probably most painfully, if you want to buy something, especially if you're at a smart company, there's like a hundred steps that you have to follow manually. You have to go to the wiki and, you know, Notion or Guru or whatever and say how to buy software. And it's like, well, if it's over $50,000, you go to Fred over here. If it's under $50,000, you use a credit card, but you have to get it approved by your frontline manager. If it's $70,000, it has to go to legal, then finance. And the onus is on you, the contract owner, to go do all of those things. So it's like that kind of like chaos and siloing is the same world that Salesforce stepped into on the sales side, right? And created the CRM category. And we intend to do the same thing on the buy side. And where we intend to go from there is broadening. So can we cover more and more categories as well as depth? Can we deepen further and further into this workflow and tackle more and more of this value chain? And as we continue to grow and scale, one thing that we're approaching differently from say a Salesforce is we've built this gigantic first party data asset. And we see that as a really powerful battery to power really interesting products in the future. So I see a you know very large all-in-one encompassing platform for folks that want to manage technology, manage spend and, and the like. And then I see an ecosystem of partners that can build 
on top of that and hook into that and kind of extend the window of value that we can create for the customer. And uh, if we're able to realize that ultimate vision and really squeeze kind of every volt of power out of that network effect battery of first party data that I mentioned, I think that'll be a very, very big business. And, you know, I believe that as you think about ultimately exiting a company, which of course is the goal, I believe in protecting optionality, but building every step of the way is if you're going to take it all the way, because that's going to be the path to a good acquisition anyway, but we're pursuing a, a very big vision. Epic. I love it. All right, David, we are up on time, so we're going to need to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, best place is LinkedIn. That's where I tend to be most active. Follow me on LinkedIn and you'll get pulled into the Tropic world pretty quickly. <laughs> awesome. David, thanks for coming on. Thanks for uh, being real on this podcast. I feel like you weren't full of shit. <laughs> you were giving us you know, real honest takes and not just giving us you know fluffy PR answers. So thank you for that. And thanks for sharing this vision. This is all super exciting and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision and hopefully have you back on in a couple of years. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brett. Pleasure being here with you today. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 